Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Anders Sugar. Anders is currently a professor in the computer science department at the University of Copenhagen. He's done a lot of interest, interesting work in natural language processing and machine learning. In particular, today, we would like to talk to him about some of his recent work in multilingual and cross-lingual NLP. Um, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks. Thanks. Um, so, you've been publishing a lot of papers recently on low-resource languages and how to do uh, NLP for these languages. Would you like to give us uh, a brief overview on uh, why this direction is interesting uh, and what you've been doing in this area? Yeah, sure. Um, and so um, we've been doing cross-lingual learning for a lot of different tasks, including a lot of uh, low-level tasks. And um, I mean, a lot of a lot of NLP today is sort of end-to-end uh, -end learning of things that we're actually interested in, sort of uh, throwing out a lot of things like part of speech tacking and parsing. Uh, and you can do that if you have a lot of data, but part of what you can use things like part of speech taggers and parsers for is get, getting inductive bias, uh, which is really uh, important with low resource languages where you typically have less data and more variance. Um, the problem is that for those languages, we typically don't have part of speech taggers and we don't have parsers. So um, we've been interested in whether we can transfer you know, um, some of the models that we have for, for more dominant languages to these low resource languages. Um, our particular line of work sort of grew out of um, um, maybe not a frustration, but a, an observation that a lot of people working on cross-lingual learning were assuming access to resources that uh, didn't seem to scale, didn't seem to be available for, for low-resource languages. So specifically in part-of-speech tacking and parsing, a lot of people were looking at languages in this sort of intersection of languages where you had tree banks, as well as uh, something like Europol. So large volumes of, of parallel data, or they would be assuming uh, having access to maybe big dictionaries or sort of Google Translate quality machine translation models, none of which you would have for, say, a language like, you know, Tiv spoken in Nigeria, 10 million speakers, uh, plenty of sort of AI-ready users there, but uh, basically no linguistic resources, and definitely not sort of Europol-style uh, parallel corpora, big dictionaries, etc. Um, so we sort of um, just asked ourselves, what, what kind of assumptions can we really make um, about these truly low resource languages? What, what kind of data is available? And obviously the answer is that, that that really depends on the language. So for some languages, we do have decent dictionaries. For some, we might have a lot of translations into a particular language. It might not be um, English, for some languages it might be French, or uh, for Greenlandic it might be Danish, uh, but for, for other languages we might not have that kind of data. Um, and so we decided to sort of uh, start off with some very conservative assumptions, uh, specifically in sort of the first paper that, that, that I suggested we talk about today, we, we only rely on the Bible. It's uh, the paper called, If All You Have Is A Bit Of The Bible. Because the Bible is definitely available for a lot of languages. Now, it's a terrible resource, right? Um, some of the Bibles that we're looking at are maybe 300 years old. 
uh, written with a different spelling convention than people than pe compared to what people use today, uh, and it's a, it's a very specific domain. Um, but we're like, you know, uh, let's see what we can do with the Bible, uh, and then sort of, you know, um, along the way we started looking at other resources like the Watchtower. Turns out to be a little better than the Bible. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, sort of monthly publication. Um, uh, do you mind explaining what Watchtower is all is about? Uh, I think some of the audience would not know about this. Yeah, so uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have this uh, monthly publication called the Watchtower, and uh, it's translated um, with relatively good quality uh, into uh, some hundred languages uh, every month. And uh, the advantage of Watchtower over the Bible is that it's uh, sort of a mixture of very religious stuff uh, and very practical stuff. Uh, sort of about how to live your life um, in, in uh, you know, um, how, to, how to live a modern life, you know, uh, how to, what to think about um, sending your kids to elementary school, what to think about going to the doctor, etc. Um, so it's a sort of, it's more general domain than the Bible. Um, Are there other, is, is that it? Like if, if we want to do NLP in some really remote language, is, is this really all that we have? The Bible and the Watchtower. For, for any for any given language, there's a lot of stuff that we have, right? Um, uh, I, I'd love to talk about some of the work that we've done using resources like keystroke locks or, you know, gaze data or speech data stuff that might be available for for. But it, we're just thinking like, what what do we know is available for pretty much all the languages that we can think of, and um, and and sort of the Bible came to mind. So. Um, sort of the, the, the next step was to say like okay so if, if we want to use the Bible right we're gonna be we're gonna be having really bad word alignments if we want to do things like annotation projection so this was sort of the first approach to cross-lingual learning going back to David Jurovsky's work uh, in 2001 I think um, if we do something like that we're gonna have bad word alignments we're gonna have bad parses on the source site of our, the parallel text that we want to use to transfer our models. Um, so we, 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 need, we need regularization and we need to, whenever possible, uh, sort of hedge our bets uh, and not necessarily commit to hard decisions uh, because there's going to be a lot of uncertainty in the pipeline. So it might be helpful. Um, uh, it might be helpful to the audience to give just a very brief uh, overview on what annotation projection is all about uh, before we do, yeah. talk about how to improve it. Sorry about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so annotation projection is sort of the idea that if you have a model for a language uh, like English, say you have a part of speech tagger, um, you can transfer that by part of speech tagging um, the source side. Uh, of a parallel corpus. So you take a translation, a human translation, say of uh, um, some parliamentary debate, you tag the English side, and then you use word alignments uh, that you can get from, um, say, GESA++, and you basically do sort of label propagation over the word alignments. So you, you send over the part of speech uh, labels from the English sentence to the corresponding French or German or TIV or whatever sentence. Uh, and then you basically, you train on that. Uh, there's a couple of problems you might get. You might not have word alignments to all words on the target side. Uh, you might have multiple alignments into the same word, et cetera. But, um, but you know, um, 
uh, in our case, uh, because we wanted to uh, regularize as much as possible because we, we knew that these alignments would be very noisy, we use multiple source languages. So the nice thing about the Bible um, is that it's multi-parallel. So all the uh, 1,600 Bibles or whatever we have uh, line up, right? So they're verse numbers. So we, we, everything is, is, is parallel. So we can have multiple source languages and we can align from multiple languages at the same time. And what we do um, in this paper is very simple. We just have all the source languages vote on the tag of any given word on the target site. And that kind of uh, that means that um, um, with very high probability we get tags for all words, and uh, it's not a problem that you have multiple tags um, projected into the same word because in the end we're going to be voting anyway. Um, and that's that's sort of uh, our approach to, to to annotation projection, going back to David Jarofsky's work in, in two thousand one. So um, doesn't this assume that languages express the same concepts using the same uh, linguistic realizations? Like something that we in English might use a noun to describe might show up as a verb or an adjective or, or some other, like these categories might not even be totally well-defined in some languages. So like you're assuming that there's a rough correspondence between the structure of each of these languages. Does this, does this assumption hold in like very distant language pairs? Well, um, no, um, and that, that's a really good point, right? Um, I'm, um, I have a bachelor's degree in linguistics. I did typology, um, and I do remember all these discuss discussions, whether Thai has adjectives, etc. cetera. Uh, assuming that Thai doesn't have adjectives, I'm sure that there's a lot of languages voting on Thai verbs and nouns to be adjectives. Uh, and that might not be motivated. Um, and that might be a problem for whatever downstream um, application you have um, in mind. But I would still argue that it's potentially um, a better inductive bias than not having one. Um, so I don't, um, I, I like to think of these like, models as giving us bias for the task that we're interested in. And I think, you know, even, even, um, uh, even a noisy signal might be, might be better than not having one. But can you, can you or, or has anyone characterized exactly how bad this problem is? Um, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I would assume that there's there's not really enough consensus among linguistic typologists to actually sort of estimate that. Oh, I, I guess not. Not even like um, the the outstanding issues on like what what categories are in a language in, in fuzzy cases. I mean, like when I actually have distant languages where nouns just show up as verbs, and, and even in even in close languages like Spanish, there'll be idiomatic expressions where. I just use a different construction to say a particular phrase and my word alignments will align a noun with a verb because of just how the idioms align. So um, like how, how bad does this actually make it as you get farther away? Do, do you have any sense of that? Um, I, I don't, but it's a good okay. question. And I, I, 
yeah, maybe maybe somebody worked. There has been some work on uh, using the typological uh, properties of a language when you're doing this multilingual sort of uh, learning in order to uh, to leverage the idea that closer languages will tend to have uh, similar representations. I, I was about to mention that. I think a lot of that work. So there's Oscar Textrum's work, and there's um, there, there's more recent work on on, on using genealogy or, or typological databases uh, in different ways for weighting uh, different source languages, but also for uh, having sort of uh, special subs feature subspaces for, for different language families. Um, a lot of that work is about parsing, and I think their um, performance and distance do not uh, – there's, there's no perfect correlation here because there's another factor, which is the annotation guidelines. Uh, sort of messing up uh, the, the picture a bit, um, but but um, but yeah, that's that's okay. I, I guess your approach of going from lots of languages at the same time hopefully mitigates this at least a little bit. And well, unless you're biased to, for all of your source languages being Indo-European or something, but but at least you might have a little better hope in the the approach that you're taking to annotation production. Well, I mean, that's uh, the vast majority of the source languages in our case are definitely Indo-European, uh, and, um, and and you know the question is whether sampling uh, in, in better ways. I mean, that's in part what the what the whole like uh, weighting the source languages based on typological distance say would be would be about. Is it's it's not really clear to me whether because there are, there are other things right here. There's domain biases. There's uh, the fact that typologically. Uh, or at least genealogically distant languages may be typologically similar uh, in some respects and not in others, et cetera. Right? So, um, our approach has been very, very simple and just like the more evidence we have for something, the better. Um, and, um, and we've looked at very simple approaches uh, so far, just waiting stuff. Yeah, but I think this, um, this idea that Matt mentioned uh, probably motivated why we, in, in multilingual learning, we care much more about tasks like Course parse fish tagging and dependency parsing instead of CFG parsing, where the representations that you would transfer are very specific. Uh, true, true, true. So, so, so one thing that I can mention is that um, if languages are very um, incommensurable uh, or chop up the space in very different ways, word alignment algorithms will suffer, and we've used the confidence of the word alignments. Uh, to weigh our projections, and that's typically a good, like that typically um, leads to better performance. Uh, and I, I guess that's sort of a, a data-driven uh, way of modeling uh, that problem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, so 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 basically, that's that's um, sort of the first thing we did, um, and you know, just showing that you know, with even if all you have is the Bible. You can do slightly better than just you know doing part of speech induction uh, for for part of speech tagging, uh, even like across language families. So it might not be perfect, and there might be all sort of sorts of problematic linguistic assumptions doing this, but it's still like a reasonable signal. Um, and that part of speech tagger we use for uh, parsing in the next paper, which is a, a tackle paper. Um, and again, we wanted to, so in dependency parsing, projection is a little harder, right? So um, 
in part of speech tagging, you can sort of look at the individual word. You can count uh, votes, and, and you can take the majority vote to be your predicted part of speech. Um, annotation projection for dependency parsing goes back to, I think, 2005, Rebecca Waugh's work, uh, where she would project dependencies if a head word had an alignment and a dependent word had an alignment. Uh, and then she would use heuristics um, to get a tree on the target side. Because the problem is that when, if you just project edges across word alignments naively, you have no guarantee that you get a tree in the, on the target side. And so she would have these heuristics for, uh, for turning uh, whatever graph you would get on the target side into a tree. Um, and her setup was um, sort of a bilingual setup with only one source language. And we kind of knew that, at least with the Bible, we would need more source languages. Uh, but also, we wanted to hedge our bets, so we wanted to um, commit to um, uh, hard decisions as uh, as little as possible. And and so running a parser, even an English parser on the English Bible, you're not going to get terribly good performance. Uh, so uh, sort of trusting a one best tree seemed dangerous. Uh, so what we decided to do instead was to uh, basically project scores, edge scores instead of edges. So not necessarily, so not doing decoding on the source side, not actually, um, uh, you know, trusting that we could find the one best tree, but instead just projecting everything from the uh, weight matrix from a graph-based dependency parser. Uh, and doing that, it, it became very easy to, um, to have multiple source languages because we're just, we're, we didn't have to, um, we didn't get these individual edges. We just basically projected everything in the weight matrix uh, across these word alignments. And on the target side, we could just count up those, uh, those weights. Uh, and then we could do the decoding on the target side on the resulting weight matrix. So this kind of was two things. So uh, multiple source languages giving us this regularization effect, um, but also, um, um, enabling us to sort of uh, um, pass on the uncertainties and, and, and not have to commit until we were actually on the on the target side um, and figuring out then what what is sort of the, 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 the minimum spanning tree uh, in the weights that, that we got from the, the source languages. So I get how, how you um, take a sentence on the source side, you run a dependency parser, you get marginals essentially and you project those like you, you also run some alignment model like IBM model one and you align from lots of languages words from source to target and you project these labels what I'm not clear on still is how you use that on the target side do you, you do you learn a model or do you just run decoding from these projected uh, scores we just, it's we just apply a minimum spanning tree algorithm to the weights that we get why not learn a model so that, that's kind of the next paper, okay. uh, the, the EACL paper, which was a follow-up to this. So, so in the tackle paper, it's it's we just have the simple uh, decoding algorithm. Um, so, so real quick before we get to that, that other paper, what about for part of speech tagging? I don't I don't think we answered that this question for the part of speech tagging work either. For part of speech tagging, we just used the the model from the the two thousand fifteen paper. Uh, sorry, I don't remember what. So, like, do, so just, do you learn a model from the target alignments, or do you just use the projections? We just use the projections. 
We just okay. do the voting okay. the ASL paper. Okay. And, uh, and again, this is a very, very simple paper. The new thing was just to sort of be able to do this multi-source transfer, um, as well as like projecting scores rather than, um, rather than edges. And then there was this interesting observation that, especially for uh, distant language pairs, IBM 1 alignments were much better than, than fancier word alignment models, um, which seemed too sensitive to word order differences. Um, at least that was sort of our gut feeling. Um, and that's also what we use for, for party speech tagging. So how many, um, how many source languages were you able to use for this experiment? Uh, I guess the question is like, how, how many languages can you rely on for this kind of transfer? Um, so I can't remember the numbers, 20 something, I think. So in the part of speech tagging paper, we did these two rounds where we would learn. So we had a hundred languages in, in, in the part of speech tagging experiments. And initially we models for 20 something of those. Uh, but then we did an additional round. It didn't really give us much better performance, but um, you know, theoretically you can sort of bootstrap and you can, you can learn, you can take the learn models and you can use those as additional sources uh, for, for a given target language. And so we ended up in some experiments having like 99 source languages. We didn't look into very sophisticated ways of doing bootstrapping and I'm sure that there's ways of getting better performance that way. Um, yeah, when I read this yeah, paper, uh, where you transfer multiple uh, multiple parse trees and add up the weights, uh, it seemed like a very intuitive approach. And it was kind of, it's the sort of thing you'd think, oh, why didn't people do this for a long time? Yeah, no, it definitely makes transfer a lot easier. You don't need heuristics, right? Which are also, you know, sensitive to annotation guidelines and and, and, and uh, linguistic differences between languages. Um, so yeah, it uh, it's sort of a, a very simple paper. We're very happy to sort of uh, come up with this approach. Um, but so so one thing you already mentioned it, Matt. That, um, so we do, we run this decoder on the target side. And in a way, um, I'm not sure that if that's what you're after, but you know, we, we want to hedge our bets as much as, much as possible, uh, but you know, we're not interested in these Bible trees on the target side. And uh, you know, if the Bible um, is you know, a 300 year old, years old Bible, um, you know, maybe, maybe that tree is not going to be uh, worth uh, a lot anyway. Um, so, so in this follow-up paper, we decided to basically not do de uh, decoding uh, on the target site Bible um, sentences, but just learn directly from the weight matrix, and then only do decoding test time on the data that we're actually interested in. So, um, so what we do is basically we um, use an LSTM that runs over the weight matrices, running running over the rows and columns of that uh, to produce weight matrices for new sentences um, with a mean squared error loss. So basically replicating weight matrices for sentences instead of building up trees. And then we do decoding on the, on the uh, at, at test time only. And that turns out to be a lot better. Can you give some more detail on exactly how this LSTM works? Uh, I didn't quite follow from that description. Right. So um, um, 
so the, the, the parser can work on any kind of matrix. So we also have experiments where we do like standard supervised uh, parsing on a binary uh, on a binary matrix. And so we have a matrix, which is the number of words um, in, in a sentence by the number of words in a sentence. And you can code up a tree um, that way, but you, you'll, you can also just um, uh, use the, uh, the raw edge cores um, as supervision. And um, the, the LSTM basically um, just, um, <clears throat> so it's, it's kind of like uh, this quadratic procedure. So we run over, um, we run over the, uh, uh, the rows uh, of these, uh, the rows in the matrix, uh, the rows in the columns of this matrix, and then we combine them in the end to come up with predictions that are, that are, um, that are column-wise. Um, and then we compute a loss using um, the mean squared error to to the uh, to the sort of the gold standard um, score matrix, if you like. I see. Yeah, you look at, looking at your paper. This is the where you have a tensor LSTM, right? Yeah, so it's 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 actually more complicated than than just a linear chain LSTM. Uh, right. Okay. Interesting. So it's cool. still not clear to me how do you do uh, like how do, given a matrix for the for one of the source languages for for one of the uh, sentences in the Bible or maybe for all the sentences in the Bible how do you go from there to the new uh, matrix for a new for a new sentence? <clears throat> so so uh, for a, a training on the Bible so like say the our target language is Slovenian um, we. Just like in the tackle paper, we project all the, um, the scores over the alignments. We get a weight matrix, which is the sum of all the projected uh, scores. Um, and then we, we train a model to reproduce that. And at test time, we get a new sentence, which is Slovenian Newswire. Uh, and we just apply that model. And then we do the coding, minimum spanning treaty coding for that. And we get a tree that we can evaluate against, say, a test suite from a, a tree bank. I see. And uh, the baseline, I suppose, would be uh, to just get uh, the like the uh, spanning tree, the best spanning tree uh, from for each sentence in the Bible, and then train a model on it. How does that compare? Um, it, it's it's a lot better. So basically, there's um, in the paper we have a delexalized um, uh, baseline, which uh, on average over the languages that we're looking at has a uh, an attachment score of about 40, and our model uh, is at about uh, 50, 48.5, whereas the sort of tackle style, like let's decode on the Bible and train on that, gets uh, about 46%. Uh, so, like, what uh, an average of 2.5 improvement. It's um, interesting. So, one common uh, criticism that I hear about uh, any kind of like you this isn't quite unsupervised but it's in that same vein where you don't have any supervised annotations in your target language uh, a criticism is how many label how many examples do I have to label to get the same performance like is that e actually easier than doing all of this work well um, I mean that, that's a really interesting discussion so it really depends on the language right so in general I think the the, the, the sort of the standard reply to that uh, question is um, sure once you have a set of trained annotators you can annotate relatively fast but the first 
you know, 100 sentences are way more difficult to get than, than you know, the following. Uh, but also for a lot of languages, it's really hard to find good annotators, right? Um, you know, one of the reasons that we're also looking into finding linguistic signals in gaze data and keystroke locks and hyperlinks, et cetera, is because, you know, for a lot of languages like whatever, Sami or something, uh, finding people that are willing to annotate, uh, at least for a research group in a university, uh, is just really hard. Uh, it might be possible to find people who are willing to put on or to have like a little eye tracker on their laptop and read some stuff, or it might be possible to uh, collect, you know, hyperlinks from online texts, but it's really hard to find annotators. Um, so that's sort of another um, another problem. Right, but if, if the number is just like 100 examples and then I get the same performance, that's that's a different scenario than if I need a thousand, ten thousand, like maybe I could find a linguist, like especially if I like a, a scenario where someone might actually do this is like, uh, I know DARPA funded military style things where like I might need to go do some aid or do something in some new country. And so I need to bootstrap some services. They would have the resources to hire one linguist who could do a hundred annotations. But, and so the question is, does that get you enough or do you need more or is this better than that? I mean, it's, um, you can use 100 sentences in a lot of different ways, right? Um, and so, so that's one dimension. The other dimension is that uh, a lot of those experiments uh, in the literature uh, evaluate on ensemble data. So maybe 100 sentences from Wall Street Journal gets you good performance on Section 23, but that's not the same as saying that it gets you good performance on, you know, um, Amazon uh, reviews or, um, or emails. Um, and, you know, the more, the, the, the smaller uh, your training set, the higher the chance of overfitting. Uh, so the more sensitive your model is going to be um, um, to any kind of shift. Um, you know, that said, I mean, you can, you can use 100 sentences in a lot of different ways. And, and for a lot of languages, I, I, I wish I had 100 sentences. Uh, it's an open question whether it's sometimes better to have, um, say, dictionaries or other knowledge, uh, like other resources like knowledge bases or uh, linguistic descriptions or entries in uh, these typological databases, etc. <clears throat> my my sort of take on it is, you know, as much as as much as much data as possible, um, and we know that things like cross-lingual transfer uh, occasionally help even in you know building fully supervised models for english so like you know if you do multitask learning um using a german part of speech data uh, as auxiliary um data for inducing uh an english part of speech attacker that that often helps right so this cross-lingual transfer signal is you know um it's interesting to 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 see how well you can do with just the bible but for any in any real set up, I would, you know, use all the data that's available, whether it's keystroke logs or uh, a tiny amount of uh, labeled data, a dictionary, a knowledge base, or whatever signal I can get from uh, neighboring, uh, neighboring languages. Yeah, that's a really good point. So going back to that paper, the ESL paper, um, where you do the late decoding, I'm curious to know if uh, if we can use this approach to also just like train languages, uh, train for other like maybe high resource languages where you have multiple parsers and 
you kind of do uh, some sort of co-training where you have multiple uh, multiple trees uh, m multiple trees predicted for the same sentence and uh, and use the same model to predict uh, to to learn a better model. Right. That's a that's an interesting thought. So um, so so um, one of the things that we worked on <clears throat> earlier is um, learning from multiple annotations, uh, which is kind of related. Um, so the idea being that um, in NLP, we're often a little straightjacketed by um, uh, uh, adjudicated annotations. Um, you know, in order to adjudicate between li linguistically trained annotators, you sometimes have to make relatively arbitrary decisions. So linguists disagree uh, about how to analyze a lot of things. You know, it's, uh, social and social media and adjective or noun, linguists might disagree. And in a way, um, it seems kind of arbitrary to, um, to stick to um, um, one analysis here. Uh, and we've done work uh, showing that um, passing some of this disagreement onto our models is sometimes beneficial. So specifically, you can, you can have sort of a, a cost-sensitive learning where you say, like, let's penalize our models for saying something that no linguist would ever say, but less for something where linguists are likely to disagree. Um, and um, so one thing that you can do with, with, with this particular parser is that you can have a lot of people annotate um, a lot of sentences, uh, and they don't even have to produce trees if they don't like trees, right, in this particular model. Uh, and then you can learn from, you know, just the sum of the annotations, sums, you know, just summing up the graphs. Um, and then you can always do decoding if you want a tree in the end. And the same way, yes, you could do that. So I, I haven't thought about parsing, syntactic parsing, but for semantic parsing, where this model would also uh, apply uh, you could potentially learn from sort of the sum of different semantic formalisms. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> All right, so there was one other paper uh, that's kind of not exactly in the same line as low resource languages, but uh, it's kind of related to multilingual parsing uh, or multilingual learning. That's, uh, that was titled Strong Baseline for Learning uh, Cross-Lingual Word Embeddings uh, for, from Sentence Alliance. I, I, I don't know, if we, would you like to give us uh, an overview on this paper? Yeah, no, it's, um, it's 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 definitely true that it's not uh, it's not uh, you know the, the three others are kind of a um, it's kind of like uh, Lord of the Rings. So there's like three volumes lining up here, and then there's a fourth one, which is a little orthogonal. Um, it's um, so so what we do here, but it's very similar in spirit. So so what we do here is we look into um, uh, cross-lingual embeddings. Uh, Bilingual dictionary induction, if you like, but again, um, you know, we had sort of similar concerns with a lot of the stuff that that happens in cross-lingual um, in, in learning cross-lingual word embeddings. Again, um, assumes access to big dictionaries, uh, Google Translate, or large volumes of parallel data. So again, we thought, like, how far can we get with um, with the Bible and um, what we do in this paper is uh, evaluate a lot of different um, uh, algorithms um, by um, applying them to, to the Bible and using the Bible for inducing um, uh, embeddings. And then um, sort of the main, the main take home is that there's this really simple algorithm 
uh, that, 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 that works really well and a lot better than uh, a lot of the things that, that, that work really well on, on Europol or if you have access to more data. Um, a particularly interesting thing about the paper is, so, so we start out with this um, sort of observation that if you want to learn um, cross-lingual embeddings, right? So typically when you learn embeddings, you sort of, you try to predict a word uh, based on words in uh, its context. So the assumption is the words, um, uh, the meaning of the word is given by the company of capes. And, and so you can, you know, try to predict it from left and right context. In, in the cross-lingual case, you uh, you can you can try to predict it from the monolingual context as well as the cross-lingual context. So if you have sentence-aligned data, which is what we assume in the paper, you can try to predict a word from its neighboring words in the same language, but you can also try to predict it from the other uh, words in the other language. And that's sort of the uh, core of a lot of these algorithms. Uh, and those are two different feature spaces, but there's actually a third space, which is the sentence ID in this aligned corpus. And some of the algorithms that have been proposed ex have sort of implicit access to this third space. Um, and what we show is that those algorithms perform a lot better than the others, at least in this Bible setup. So we, we have this very simple algorithm that only uses that feature space and we show that that actually performs really well and as well as any of the other algorithms. So it's a very simple algorithm. Um, basically it works like this. So you have a Bible, you wanna have cross-lingual embeddings. What you do is you build a word by verse ID matrix. So you basically just record where in the Bible do you see a word? Now the verse ID space is cross-lingual. That's defined for both languages. So by just having these vectors saying, where in the Bible do I see a, uh, a, a word, you get a cross-lingual space. And it turns out that just doing SVD or something on those vectors or on that matrix gives you really good embeddings. Um, specifically, what we do to get good performance is either to a positive PMI matrix of words by verse IDs and then do SVD on that, or just take uh, a binary matrix and do skip gram negative sampling on that matrix. Um, it's really simple, and uh, it's just you know. And it, 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 I think the sort of interesting part, um, except there's a lot of interesting things uh, that, that we try to uh, uh, talk about in the paper, like you know the relation to this dice metric that people have been using in machine translation. Uh, or that used to be sort of a, a baseline algorithm uh, for word alignment. Um, but also, um, it's sort of uh, conceptually different, right? So instead of saying the, that the meaning of a word is the company it keeps, we're saying that the meaning is sort of where you see a word, uh, the situations in which you see a word. And, you know, as some, I, before I did my linguistics uh, typology bachelor's degree, I did philosophy uh, because I, I was a big fan of Wittgenstein. And, to me, this is a slightly Wittgensteinian in the sense of, uh, you know, defining a word by the situations in which it's used. Um, and, you know, since we did this paper, we've looked into other um, uh, sort of extra linguistic way, extra linguistic context. So, for example, you can also look at a, a, a word's distribution over YouTube videos. 
and look for uh, you know multilingual uh, common threats for YouTube videos and think of that as a cross-lingual representation. Or you can think of uh, you know the representation of a word over uh, multilingual hashtags. Or there's a lot of uh, a lot of things here. We've also used gaze data to um, give us uh, cross-lingual embeddings, and I think that's that opens up sort of an interesting can of worms to like uh, can we can we find can we find sort of extra linguistic reference points. And use those for either inducing cross-lingual embeddings, or at least improving or regularizing our cross-lingual embeddings. So one detail here that's uh, not clear: How do you evaluate the different uh, methods for for embedding the words? Right. So that's a, that's a really good question because there there's so many um, um, ways you can evaluate um, embeddings, right? Um, so we wanted to, I, I guess. Ideally, we would have like a ton of different downstream tasks. Um, we wanted to keep things simple and, and have a lot of uh, different languages and different data sets and, and just focus on a couple of tasks. We felt that the most generic ones would be, or the most representative ones would be bilingual dictionary induction and word alignment. So that's what we, what we use. And one interesting thing there is that that enabled us to compare to word alignment algorithms. And it turns out that one really competitive baseline here is just IBM One again, uh, which is something that people in cross-lingual embedding space typically do not use as a baseline. And it turned out that was a lot better than some of the word, uh, word embedding algorithms. Uh, so yeah, specifically we we use we we learn the cross-lingual embeddings, and then we have two tasks. One is given human word alignments, um, so manually uh, annotated word alignments. Um, if a word in some sentence is aligned to another word, can we predict what word that is? That's a relatively simple task. And the harder task is, if you have a word in the bilingual dictionary, can you predict what the translation of that word is according to the dictionary? Right. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, the, definitely the dictionary induction seems like uh, <coughs> a very uh, reasonable uh, evaluation. I'm kind of surprised that you're using word alignment because kind of... Uh, I don't know. It's uh, for me. It's it's kind of an archaic uh, task at this point, uh, but yeah, right. I guess it's. Um, I mean, in in some way, it's simpler than bilingual dictionary induction. In, but at the same time, it's also sort of a meeting in context, which to some extent is more interesting than bilingual dictionary induction because you know words have a lot of different senses and 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 uh, in word alignment. Uh, data, you potentially get some of the less frequent senses too, uh, which you might not get in, in, in bilingual dictionaries. Uh, you might also have um, metaphor and things like that that would not be represented in dictionaries. Makes sense. So uh, any last thoughts about this paper? Uh, I'm, I'm also curious to know if you have um, any thoughts about uh, the current state of things in multilingual learning, what's coming next, what should, be, what should people work on? Um, when they're doing multilingual well, NLP, I think um, so. I'm, I'm uh, I've spent today in uh, uh, at the Technical University of Darmstadt having one-one meetings with a lot of students, uh, a lot of which work on cross-lingual learning, uh, also a lot of which work on multitask learning. And I think um, you know uh, uh, your work uh, on combining multitask learning and cross-lingual learning. Is, I think is going to be representative of a lot of work that we're going to see in the future. Um, 
it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense when you deal with low resource languages to um, look into all sorts of uh, data, whatever is available that can give you some, you know, interesting bias um, for inducing models. And I like to think of it as sort of a knowledge base completion problem, right? So if you want to do Quechua um, dependency parsing and you don't have Quechua dependency parsing data, uh, if you have English dependency parsing data and English part of speech attacking data and Quechua part of speech attacking data, maybe you know those three resources will give you a lot of correlations that will be um, that will give you um, a basis for for learning high quality uh, Quechua dependency parsers. Um, so I think that that sort of combination of multitask learning and and, and cross lingual learning is really interesting. I also think that there's a there's a sort of third dimension which is uh, semi-supervised learning, and I, there's a lot of work um, um, in, in in progress uh, across a lot of different groups that I visited recently on trying to get multitask learning and semi-supervised learning to work together. Uh, there's also using uh, other resources like knowledge bases uh, for regularization, um, and um, you know I, I think I, I think we're going to see a lot of work sort of trying to um, get uh, get hands dirty on, on trying to combine a lot of different uh, uh, data sources. Because, you know, um, uh, for any of the languages that we deal with in the Bible paper, there's a lot of source data sources that are probably much, much better than the Bible, right? So the Bible might be sort of in the intersection of what's available for all these languages, but for any one of them, there's, there's going to be more data that's uh, much more interesting to look at. And I think people will, will hopefully um, um, do a lot of that uh, in the future. Here's, here's a random question that what you just said made me think of. So we've talked about today about um, cross-lingual transfer of feature rep word representations and of part of speech tags and of dependency parsing. Has anyone ever thought about doing uh, cross-lingual learning of language modeling? Does that even make sense? Like, could you build a better language model for Quechua by leveraging a trillion tokens of English? Like a character-based language model? Or, or word level. Like, um, I, I, I feel like I've seen work on this, so I better not say anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. I, I think somebody worked on that. Um, so, um, uh, I, I guess the, the I don't reason I think... I'm worried that I'm going to say something really stupid. <laughs> it's, it's fine. I'm just thinking about this because um, I get Walid and Matt Peters at AI2 have done some work on using language models to improve uh, performance on uh, other NLP tasks. And right. this talk about multi multitask learning, cross-lingual learning, maybe maybe wonder about how... Uh, we've also thought about um, using this for domain adaptation, right? So um, Waleed's paper on this science, i.e. some of all tasks and with Matt Peters was how do we do better at information extraction on a small domain where we don't have a lot of la labeled data using a language model. So could you do the same transfer for language modeling? Like, I don't know, it, it just made me think about this. And I, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, you, one of the things you can get from multitask learning implicitly is domain adaptation by having another task in another uh, language and, and or in another domain 
uh, in your target domain. And uh, you know, there's Merrick Rye's work also on using a language model as your auxiliary task. Um, we've done part of speech attacking work where um, we have predicting the lock frequency of the next word um, as an auxiliary task, uh, giving us much better performance on, on unseen words, for example. Um, so, I, you know, it's it's uh, you don't have to connect a lot of dots to get cross-lingual language modeling uh, as a potential bridge here, I guess. Um, um, but I haven't worked on that. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, okay, thank you very much for joining us for the recording, and uh, yeah, we'll be looking forward to uh, more papers in, in your uh, in your research. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.